This is Father Robert Barron. Friends, I invite you to reflect with me on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a non-for-profit apostolate dedicated to the mission of evangelization. We utilize media, both old and new, to share the faith on every continent and to facilitate an encounter with Christ and His Church. Through our efforts, we hope to take the gospel out into the peripheries of the culture, where the transformative power of God's Word is most needed. Let us open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each one of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might share the warmth and light of Jesus Christ, who is the Word on Fire. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, we come to the end of the liturgical year with our feast this weekend, the Feast of Christ the King. You know, it's a feast that we have trouble with, especially in the West, in the lands where democracy holds sway, and we're kind of skeptical of kings. Our country was born in a great act of revolution against a king, and if someone claims kingliness, we get kind of nervous. In fact, if you want to go after a politician, you'll say something like, this guy thinks he's the king. Our entire system is set up to preclude the possibility of kings. And so it's always a little bit awkward for us to celebrate the feast of Christ the King. But here's the thing. Kingship might be a bit alien to us, but it's a very central biblical idea. And once we get it on biblical terms, I think we'll find it a very illuminating and liberating theme. Here's how we start. Go right to the very beginning of the Bible. When God creates this beautiful creation, coming forth from him like a liturgical procession. How wonderful in the opening verses of uh, the book of Genesis, it sounds like the uh, arrival of liturgical ministers as one day follows another, and first comes the light, and then comes the, the earth, and then comes the, the sky, and the animals, and those things, the team, and the sea, etc. Well, who comes at the very end of this procession? But human beings, just as the most important people come at the end of a liturgical procession. So at the end of the great procession of creation come human beings. This shows, by the way, the priestly character of human beings. We're meant to praise God on behalf of all creation. That's part of our identity in the Bible. It also shows, though, our kingly quality. Think now of a great, not so much liturgical procession, but a political procession coming into a a hall of government. Who would come at the end but the leader, but the king? Adam is supposed to be the king of creation. What I mean now is reigning as a kind of viceroy of God. Mind you, he's made in the image and likeness of God. He bears the imprint of God, and his purpose is to govern the world according to God's purposes, which means the purposes of love and compassion and nonviolence and justice. That's Adam's role. That's the role of all human beings. Therefore, what's a way to understand sin? Well, sin is bad priesthood. I've said that before. It means bad praise. But sin is also bad kingship. Think now in terms of the story of Adam allowing the serpent to be at play in the garden, allowing himself to be duped by the serpent. 
That's bad kingship. It's bad governance, bad leadership. He now wants to govern the world according to his own desires, not the purposes of God. Bad kingship leads to trouble now across the board. That's an old theme, by the way, not just in the Bible, but a lot of ancient literature. When the king goes bad, the whole country goes bad. When we human beings lose our way, we become bad kings, creation itself suffers. So now look at the whole history of salvation. God continually establishing kings in Israel. Go all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, come up through Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Saul, and maybe par excellence, David. What's God doing? Well, not just establishing a sort of uh, ever-improving political order, something much deeper. He's setting up a human figure who'd be a steward of his creation. As this king governs Israel aright, He's meant in principle to become the ruler of the whole world. You see it really clearly in the David stories in 1 and 2 Samuel. As David branches out, he establishes a kind of Israelite empire, reaching out to other nations, bringing in their wealth, etc. It's the idea of the king of Israel becoming king of the world. And notice, please, David at his best, at his best, is always ruling according to God's purposes listening to God, abiding by God's will. Now, what else do we know, though, about David? We know that he's a fallen figure. The story of Bathsheba, if we have any doubts, would allay them. David is a tragic, riven, compromised figure. Even more so his son Solomon, who does indeed build the temple. He's given great gifts of wisdom, but then Solomon uh, becomes dysfunctional, divided. In the wake of Solomon, Israel splits in two. And then we see, both in the north and the south, a string of remarkably bad kings. The idea is God wants to rule through his earthly viceroys, but they're bad kings. They're imitating Adam in his sin. So take one more step. In the wake of this, we hear in the prophets and the Psalms, a longing. And you see it all the time. I wouldn't have time now to go through all the passages. There are many, many. When Israel begins to long for a new David, who'd be the true David, a human figure, but through whom God would rule his creation. It's interesting now in the Psalms and prophets, you'll often hear the longing for God to be king. Lord, how long? When will you return, Lord, to be king? But his kingship will be exercised through a Davidic figure. And therefore, you've got the dream of Genesis realized. Now, in the wake of that background, so maybe let's prescind from our American hang-ups about kings and get into a biblical space. In the light of that background, we now look at Jesus. Is he presented to us as high priest? Yes, indeed. And there's all kinds of texts about that. Is he a prophet? Yes, indeed. But he's also very clearly presented as precisely this figure, who's at one and the same time the Davidic king, a human figure, and God ruling his creation. He's the God-man, 
the human king who is the perfect viceroy of the divine king. Gosh, and once you see it, everybody, it's all over the place in the Gospels, this motif. Think, for example, those Christmas stories, Matthew and Luke, Luke especially. When we see a rivalry set up, if you want, between Caesar Augustus, the king of the whole world, and this new baby, who in fact is the true king of the world. I preached on that before, I think, in uh, my Christmas sermon. I won't go into all the details, but you see a tale of two kings. Caesar, who rules through power and wealth, violence, the size of his army, etc., opposed by a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, helpless, and yet who's accompanied by an army of angels who wields a heavenly power greater than any of the earthly power wielded by Caesar. Now, now, watch as that child, that little baby king, come of age, shows us what God's kingship looks like. Look at Jesus' ministry now. First of all, reaching out to the 12 apostles. They symbolize the gathered 12 tribes. One of the roles of kingship was to bring the nation together. Furthermore, watch how Jesus goes out to the margins. Here an echo now of Pope Francis a little bit here. But Jesus going out to the man born blind, to Zacchaeus, to the woman at the well. Watch Jesus' open table fellowship where he draws in saints and sinners, the insiders and the outsiders, the beloved and the despised. All are welcome at the table of the Lord. Look at his gesture of forgiveness. It's not just Jesus being a nice fellow. It's Jesus as king drawing in those who had been alienated from the life of Israel. Watch something else. It's anticipated in, in Luke's Christmas story, but you see it now throughout the Gospels. Jesus taking on the embedded powers of the world. So the scribes and Pharisees, the temple establishment, the secular military leadership of his time, those who rule precisely through fear, through violence, through oppression, through injustice, the rich taking advantage of the poor, the powerful taking advantage of the powerless. Jesus calls them out, opposes them. And then behind them, behind their dysfunction, he sees a spiritual kingship, a corrupt and dysfunctional spiritual kingship. And he calls out that power too. Jesus doing battle now with the demons. Jesus saying, I've seen Satan fall like lightning from the sky. What he's signaling is, behind all forms of human corruption and dysfunction, there's an even deeper, more abiding, and more frightening spiritual corruption and dysfunction. And Jesus' ministry is a kingly ministry. Let's say it's a warrior's ministry. He fights nonviolently. He fights through the power of his word. But by God, he fights. It all comes to a climax, doesn't it? at the end of his life, when Jesus taking on the dark powers in all their forms, spiritual, political, material, economic, and they hunt him down, and they nail him to a cross. And it appears as though this is just one more failed king. Once more, the powers of worldly corruption reign. 
But then Jesus, with the power of the Spirit, rises from the dead, showing forth that God's power is greater than anything that's in the world, and that Jesus is now the true king. How beautiful, how ironic that it's Pontius Pilate that places over the cross, which is the instrument of torture, the means by which worldly kingship does its worst. He places on that cross the sign, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He announces to the whole world in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek that a new king has arrived. The old powers of the world have been eclipsed, and the new king has come. And everybody, this is Paul's message. Paul, who understood all the textures I was talking about earlier, and and many more, understood the Old Testament trajectories. He saw Jesus risen from the dead as the new king, and hence he said over and again, Jesus Curios, Jesus is the Lord. He's the king of the world. And now he's the one to whom your allegiance is due. It's under his headship that you ought to arrange your own life. And that's the still revolutionary message of the gospel, which still makes the powers of the world tremble. I'll close with this. Padre Pro, at the height of the Cristero tragedy in Mexico, when the church is being viciously persecuted, and he's hunted down and he's executed. As he's shot to death, he cries out, Viva Cristo Rey! Long live Christ the King! And he was shouting it as a taunt to the powers of the world, represented by those who are killing him. See, that's still the stance of all of us who believe in the gospel of Jesus. Still the stance of all of us who believe that Christ is our King. And see, that's why the feast day today matters so much. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to The Word on Fire. I hope that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor. Until we meet again next week, I pray that God will bless you and those you love. Friends, holiness is heroism, and we need heroic priests. That's why we partnered with Spirit Jew Studios to create a short film highlighting the demands and joys of the priesthood. Watch the entire film for free and share it with all the young men you know by visiting heroicpriesthood.com.